Okay, we are live. And we have with us Alexander Mercuris in London. And we have with us at an undisclosed location, the one and only Professor <laughs> Jeffrey Sachs, who is the director for the Center of Sustainable Development in Columbia, NY. How are you doing, Professor Sachs? Doing very well, and uh, on the Silk Road, actually, in Central Asia. So uh, have, having a good time seeing some uh, wonderful places. Amazing, amazing. So we are on uh, a tight uh, time uh, timeline. So let's get started. Alexander? Yeah. Absolutely. I'm passing it off to you guys. Hello to everybody, by the way, that's watching us. And a big thanks to our amazing moderators. Let's go. Indeed. And since we've got short space of time, let's go straight in. And we're going to talk about Vilnius, the NATO summit there. Uh, Professor Sachs has done, I find, an excellent article describing how this war that we have in Ukraine, at the centre of it has been this obsessive, I say obsessive, he doesn't use that word, I use that word, this obsessive desire to get Ukraine into NATO, at least to expand NATO eastwards. And what we now have is a situation where Ukraine is faced with a war. Now, this is, again, my interpretation, faced with a war, which it is clearly losing and which is causing it enormous destruction. And at the same time, NATO is saying, yes, you will still join one day, but not now, not not now, not anytime soon, not under any conditions that we can set out. And I think that is terrible. I think that is terrible for Ukraine and it is terrible for peace. So over to you, Jeffrey Sachs. Well, I, I agree with uh, all of it. Uh, instead of the word obsessive, I, I would probably say relentless because uh, it has been the driver of U.S. foreign policy since 1992. The idea that there's a unipolar world and now the U.S. is going to run everything with the demise of the Soviet Union. And so I think that this was really planned step by step, and it's all gone uh, absolutely disastrously because these people are not very clever, by the way. They, they really are not very clever. Uh, they have no sense uh, of proportion and what they're doing. And of course, they denigrated Russia's capacity to respond to anything that the United States put up. So they got everything wrong relentlessly, but they have created exactly the formula to destroy Ukraine. Uh, this is the formula that says there's no path to peace because we will do, the West will do exactly what Russia will fight to the end for because it's an existential a position for Russia, and that is not having NATO on its 2,000-kilometer border uh, by being positioned in Ukraine. So this has been such a shit show. I don't know if we're allowed to say that on the air, yeah. but uh, it's unbelievable trying to understand why is, uh, I, I think it was basically a consistent underestimation of what Russia would do at every stage. So this was kind of the neocons by their own bluster and blather and arrogance and ignorance, thinking that they could do whatever they wanted without any opposition. And, and President Putin called their bluff. And now they went to Vilnius without an idea in their heads about how to end this war. 
But what's stunning, what we're going to see, actually, it, 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 since it's this is not going to be settled at the negotiating table in the coming weeks or months, this is obvious. The, the simple truth seems to be the one that Jake Sullivan and, and, and uh, Biden said a few weeks ago, and that's uh, the U.S. has run out of uh, ammunition, ammunition to give to Ukraine. And if that's the case, which is what the U.S. has said, well, it's, it's just going to have an absolutely disastrous outcome for Ukraine. But Vilnius was without a single constructive idea, without any impulse whatsoever to actually help save Ukraine. They don't care. And I think another part of this, obviously, is that from the U.S. security establishment calculation, eh, what does it matter how many more thousands or tens of thousands of people die? That's never been their calculation as long as it's not U.S. body bags. And uh, this is uh, part of the profound cynicism of all of this. Not an idea, not a constructive approach, not a word about peace or negotiation or discussion, nothing except a formula guaranteed to be more disaster. Mm. Absolutely. Can I just ask you one particular point which stood out for me about your article, which is something I didn't know, that in 1992, it seems that there were private discussions within the Bush administration about how to expand NATO eastwards. This is at the very time that, well, shortly after the time when the Russians were told that wasn't going to happen. It's also the time when people like yourself were preparing to go to Russia to work find ways of changing Russia in some ways, integrating it with the West, building up the relationship between Russia and the West. And you've spoken on our programs about how you would telephone people in the White House and in the administrations, the various administrations, saying, can I get help to do this in Russia, which has worked in Poland, and it wasn't happening? Do you think there's a linkage with this? Oh, it, it, no, it's it's the same story. It's not a linkage. Mm. It, it is exactly the same story. Mm. I didn't understand it at the time. I actually you know, got engaged heavily with Russia in 1990 uh, with Soviet Union when Grigory Yavlinsky was the economic advisor to Gorbachev. And he asked me for for help and some suggestions because what I had suggested for Poland, debt cancellation, emergency stabilization, funding, uh, I invented something called the Zwolti Stabilization Fund, a currency stabilization fund. And just to give you an idea of what geopolitics was like, I I know a lot about uh, currency stabilization. That was uh, that was my specialty. So uh, I was helping uh, Poland in its uh, new government, the Mazowiecki government. And I had the idea literally one morning, it was the IMF meetings in September 1989. And I said, you know, Poland needs a stabilization fund for its currency now that it's going to be making market reforms. Uh, And so I typed up a page of what a stabilization fund is from economic history. And I called Senator Robert Dole, uh, who was the Senate Majority Leader. Uh, first, I called the Polish finance minister who was in Washington in his first days ever as finance minister. And he was at the IMF meetings in Washington. 
and uh, I said, Lezik, uh, could I could I try to get you a billion dollars today? And he said, well, yeah, of course, if you can do that, fine. So I called up the Senate Majority Leader, Senator Dole, and I said, could I come in, Senator? And he knew that I was advising Poland, so he brought me in. And, and I explained to him, this is what Poland really needs to avoid a hyperinflation. And uh, he said, could you come back in an hour? And so I came back in an hour. And who was there? The uh, National Security Advisor uh, sitting in Senator Dole's office, uh, General Scowcroft. Uh, and Senator Dole said, uh, Mr. Sachs, could you explain to General Scowcroft your idea? So I handed him the page. I explained what currency stabilization is how uh, this was part of Keynes's insight from 1919 and uh, why this was what Poland needed. And General Scowcroft said, well, we'll take a look at it. Uh, and Senator Dole said, call me at the end of the day. So uh, at the end of the day, 5 p.m., I called Senator's office and he said, uh, Jeff, tell your friends uh, that they've got their billion dollars. So that was one day, one, it was, that was eight hours. I thought, yeah, pretty damn good economist, you know, uh, that's really persuasive. And I had many other ideas, canceling Poland's debts and so forth. Basically, they were accepted, all of them. I thought, this is pretty good. This is how you're supposed to do stabilization. Poland stabilized, had a stable currency after the collapse of uh, the Eastern trade, Poland started growth in the middle of 1990 and then had 30 years of, of growth. Now, the, the Soviet Union, I mean, I should say Yavlinsky was watching this. So he he called, said, could I meet you in, in Warsaw? And we met, got to know each other a little bit. And I said, I'd be happy to help Gorbachev, whom I admired tremendously, by the way. I know many people do not and see the economic collapse and the collapse of the Soviet Union and all the rest. But Gorbachev was a man of peace and a man of incredible decency. And he wanted a common European home. And I loved the idea. And I got stuck with that idea, I have to say, for the next uh, 33 years, because that's what we really need, not the barriers. So I said I would try to help uh, President Gorbachev. We actually had a project at Harvard and MIT in the spring of 1991 to come up with a plan. I wrote a central part of it based on what Poland had done, which was stabilize its currency, avoid a hyperinflation, get its debts canceled, get a fresh start, begin economic growth. And the White House turned it down flat, flat immediately. And by the way, I wasn't the only person in, in this group. This was uh, Graham Allison, who was dean of the Harvard Kennedy School at the time, uh, Robert Blackwell, who became you know very major figure in U.S. foreign policy, Stanley Fisher, who became many things, including vice president of the Fed, uh, uh, governor of the, the Israeli Central Bank, uh, chief economist of the World Bank. It wasn't a, it, it, it wasn't a, you know, some bizarre group. It was pretty damn establishment, and we were saying help the Soviet Union avoid a financial collapse. Okay, zero. The White House said, you know, basically uh, ridiculous. We're not going to help the Soviet Union, whether it's Gorbachev or not. Gorbachev fell. Gaidar 
who was his, Yeltsin's economic advisor, called me in the fall, said, please come to the dacha outside of Moscow. We urgently need to talk about the financial situation. So I came in September 89. Uh, this is now September 91 and uh, met with uh, Gaidar. Uh, and uh, interestingly, just as an example, uh, the G7 finance deputies uh, were coming to Moscow in November. And I know a lot about that. So I said to Yegor Gaidar, who's a wonderful person, tell them you need a standstill on debt payments. You're, you're running out of reserves. Before everything explodes, you need a standstill. So I was with him in the room as the G7 deputies came in. Then he went into the room and I stayed on the outside. The meeting broke and he came out ashen-faced and said, Yegor, what happened? He said, they told me if we don't pay every dollar on time, we stop all aid immediately, the food shipments on the high seas, you pay every penny that's due. And... Russia ran out of foreign exchange reserves in the first days of 1992. Now, if you have experience in finance, that means that's how hyperinflation starts. Mm -hmm. I went back to the White House and said, are you kidding? I went to the IMF. Look what Poland did. Nothing. I went to the Secretary of State who said to me, Mr. Sachs, even if I agree with you, I just want to tell you, it's not going to happen. You're not going to get the aid. I was, of course, nonplussed. Russia was not exactly the enemy at that moment. Russia was at the end of the Soviet Union. Yeltsin said, we're done with this Soviet period. We want to be normal. And what happens in Washington absolute, complete unwillingness to do anything, but interestingly, unwillingness to do anything of the kind that they had just done for Poland. It was very confusing to me, frankly, because it was a, a little bit like a controlled experiment. I was the same economic advisor. It was the same recommendations. It was the same moment a year later. But what I was observing and did not understand at the time was the Cheney, Wolfowitz, uh, uh, Rumsfeld, uh, neocon ascendancy, which mm. was starting. And of course, I didn't realize it was going to become the Biden, Newland, everyone mm. ascendancy. But I was watching something that was completely devoid of economics, completely devoid of just even a scintilla of empathy or understanding that you don't leave a major nuclear power in profound financial crisis, as was happening in 1992. And I was a student of John Maynard Keynes, and especially of what I regard as one of the most important books of the 20th century, The Economics of the Peace, which mm. Keynes wrote in a disgusted mood in 1919 after the Versailles Treaty saying, are you all crazy? You're, you're creating the conditions for the next world war, for the mm -hmm. next 
horror of Europe by having this kind of punitive settlement. And I was trying to tell them as an expert, don't do this. By the way, I was also advisor to Leonid Kuchma. So this is people say to me every day now, you know, you're a Putin apologist. This was years before President Putin came on the scene, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I was advisor to the Ukraine government the same way at the same time. They didn't want to help. This was now the U.S. unipolar world. Mm -hmm. And it was a little hard for me to understand because... I was entranced with the idea of a world of peace, you know, rather naive. Why not? Uh, Gorbachev had said, from Rotterdam to Vladivostok, this is a common economic home. This is a world of peace. I thought it was a pretty nice idea. And by the way, it was truly, completely within reach. And we just didn't want it for a moment. And I, I would add that the funds that would have been needed would not have been hugely high they were tiny this was the whole thing tiny by the way you know a billion dollars for poland okay it was nice to get it in an eight-hour turnaround but this is nothing but the effect of it in enabling a currency to be stabilized and enabling a coherent economic program to go forward is enormous this is it's not, I won't use the word, the joke of economic stabilization because it'll be misunderstood by people. But I've been involved in many stabilizations. There's a, a little bit of magic involved in creating a framework of expectations and a little bit of money, well put, well placed at the right moment, mm -hmm. goes an enormous distance because it's mm -hmm. positively reinforced. And they refuse to do any of that in the case of first Gorbachev's Soviet Union in the last days of perestroika, and then in Yeltsin's new Russia, where Yeltsin said, and I sat across from him, we just want to be normal. We want to be a normal country in a normal time. Please help. I said, Mr. President, no problem. This is the most important development of the 20th century in geopolitics. This is obvious. And it not only was it not obvious, it, it was completely resisted by the U.S. And I would just add the, the other thing that, you know, and there are several things that are important to understand how deep the underlying direction is and how, therefore, how persistent it is and how these plans get set and then they get carried out when all the evidence runs the wrong way. You can see all of this forming. I could catch the glimpses of it early on, but then I would really encourage people to read uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski's piece in Foreign Affairs in 1997, uh, called a, I think it's called A Strategy for Eurasia. And he spells out almost precisely the timeline for NATO enlargement, including to Ukraine. This is 1997. Putin's not on the scene. This has nothing to do with Putin. This is no reaction to Putin. This is years, and this is a decade, more than a decade, before the Bucharest NATO summit where the offer is made. And Brzezinski spells out exactly the timeline because these are deep plans. And another thing that people should look at is Wesley Clark, who was the NATO commander, commanding general, because he went into the Pentagon 
on two occasions and came out completely shaken by the neocons who explained to them, explained to Clark, all the wars that the U.S. was going to have to take out all of the governments that had been Soviet or Russian allies, Syria and Iraq and all the rest. This was a plan, longstanding. You don't have to be crazy. Just listen to what these people tell us. The problem is everything else is confidential, hidden, and the government lies nonstop about everything, nonstop. And so you have to be in the room to see it, or you have to know someone who is in the room, or you have to watch very closely to get the drift of this. But, you know, all the people say, oh, it's nothing to do with NATO, blah, 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 blah. They don't know. How could they know? The New York Times has denied it for 20 years in this kind of pablum that, that the American people have been fed. So they have no data, no information unless they're watching you guys. That's the, that's <laughs> the basic point. And that leads us directly to Vilnius, because what we now see is the unwinding or rather, you know, the, the logical end point of this plan that was developed then that's been followed relentlessly. And I'm going to say this. And forgive me for saying this, what you were proposing as it's not huge sums of money, a realistic way forward. It might have run into problems going forward, but it was realistic. This plan that was devised in the 1990s was never a realistic one. It was always going to fail. That is an iron, I mean, you know, that that's correct. Iron, that is, it, there was never any possible way that but, it you could know, succeed. I, I think the thing is, uh, and, and by the way, it's as bad as the economics were in the early 1990s because of this US and Western craziness, boneheadedness, it wasn't even the decisive factor in this, because even when when uh, Putin came into power, he was absolutely pro-European. There's no doubt about it. And I know many European leaders that dealt dealt closely with him, friends of mine, people who are absolutely wonderful leaders who said, of course, he was extremely cooperative. So even with all of the blunders, which were terrible mistakes, even in the early 2000s, this could have been rectified. But this plan of NATO enlargement was so relentless. There was a Victoria Newland at every step, by the way. That's the amazing where's Waldo kind of thing, because she is the deputy national security advisor for Cheney. Then she's the U.S. ambassador to NATO. Then she's the spokesperson spokesperson for uh, the uh, uh, the State Department for Hillary Clinton. Uh, then she's the Assistant Secretary of State on the Maidan. Now she's the Undersecretary of State. So if there's one person who personifies the constant uh, thread of this, it's, it's, it's Newland. But this could have been avoided so many times. And... Oh, we've lost him. We've lost him. You freeze up. You froze up. Froze up. Yeah. He'll come back. Yeah. Well, can I can I just say this is this is history that we've just been hearing about history, which much of which I didn't know. I didn't know anything about these meetings, but it, it brings us back to this point that this um, decision, this policy, has very very deep roots 
It was completely unrealistic. It was disastrous in effect. It was, in my opinion, immoral in its purpose. I mean, eastward expansion of NATO in the kind of way that was done and the kind of plans towards Russia that were being talked about were and are immoral in their purpose. And they've led us directly to the dead end, which is where we are now, which is Vilnius. The fact that they've, exactly as Professor Sachs was saying, they've all met together in Vilnius. They can't come up with any kind of strategy. They can't come up with any plan. They've run out of, of ammunition by their own admission. They've got no ammunition that they can use to supply to Ukraine. But they can't let go. They can't come forward and say, let's sit down, accept that NATO cannot expand to Ukraine. Let's talk about the let's talk with the Russians about security. Let's bring this war finally to an end. They can't do that. And it is the greatest failure of policy since Versailles. I don't know if you heard any of that, Professor. No, Sanders. I didn't. But uh, poof, uh, back again from Samarkand. So <laughs> good yes. to be with you. But so, I got so, a, my, my personal hotspot. So I think uh, I think it, it, it can hold for a moment. So I, I, just, I don't I, remember where I was ranting exactly. Well, well, but, well, 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 what I was saying was that briefly, we were talking about the unreality of what was proposed. I said that it was, it was not only unreal, but it was also immoral. And it has led us directly to the dead end which is now Vilnius, because they have no way now of proceeding forward with this plan. They do not know what to do. But at the same time, they cannot retreat from it. They have no idea how to retreat. And I ended by saying that it's the greatest failure of policy, Western policy, since Versailles. Well, let, let me say uh, the, the following uh you know, if one tries to interpret, uh, I've, I'm trying to interpret this uh, this craziness because there were so many warnings. Don't try this at home. Don't do this by our leading, you know, our greatest uh, diplomat, George Kennan, was extremely clear, of course. Bill Burns, our CIA director, who was the uh, ambassador to Russia in uh, in in uh, 2008 wrote an absolutely vivid memo niet means niet of course like everything uh alexander and i think this is part of the point everything is secret except that one showed up on wikileaks yeah. so the public hears nothing nothing about the debates not a word and our dumb newspapers not a word except whatever the government tells them to say and so in 2008, my view is they just couldn't believe that they wouldn't get away with whatever they wanted. First, the Orange Revolution. Okay, we'll just get it through with Yushchenko as president. Didn't quite work out. Then NATO. Okay, we'll do that. Then, then came Yanukovych. How the hell did he become president again? Now we have neutrality again. That was unacceptable. Then they thought, okay, we can dump him. Uh, we can overthrow him. And uh, and there was uh, Victoria Newland handing out cookies on the Maidan. And I happened to catch a glimpse of uh, of this myself. And it was disgusting. 
the U.S. role in the violent overthrow of Yanukovych, but they thought they could get away with it, that a new government would come in and then it would start. And they believed until the end. I'm quite convinced that Putin was bluffing that he would never launch a a, a military effort against NATO enlargement, that in the end he would back down, he would We'll see him through the bluff. And when he did launch the uh, special operation in February 24th, 2022, he did it with the view, in my opinion, that Ukraine would come to the negotiating table quickly, that this was basically to get the negotiations that the United States had rejected at the end of 2021. And indeed, immediately Zelensky said, yeah, we could be neutral. Uh, We just need security guarantees. A pretty basic point, by the way, that was the last lucid moment of Zelensky. I don't know what what his private (laughs) attitudes are, but it was the last statement that he made of any honesty, in my opinion, about the fate of Ukraine. He said, we can be neutral. We need security guarantees. This fighting should stop. And then we know it almost did stop until the United States stopped the stopping of the war by intervening and saying, don't you dare agree to negotiate. So they continued their fantasy world that Putin's at an end. He'll never mobilize and our sanctions will kill him. And everything is bluff, in my opinion, and tremendous miscalculation because these people are not very bright and they do not calculate the next move. And they have no understanding of the move on the other side. And so this is why there's no negotiation, because they can't think. They keep thinking whatever they read in the newspaper, which is, by the way, whatever the government has told the newspaper to publish. So they believe their own press releases, which is astounding because the press releases are so obviously phony. So it seems to me, you know, the conclusion of all of this is, if it's right that they've run out of ammunition, it's, this is what we're going to find out. This is pr- probably the only fact that is going to actually determine something. Uh, mm. And uh, it's sad to say because this was so utterly avoidable for 30 years. This was utterly avoidable for the last two years. It could have been stopped in March 2022. It could have been stopped in Vilnius last week. There have been a shred of honesty. And by the way, I can tell tell you two gentlemen that um, I had, uh, and I, I won't say more than what I'm going to say, but I, I had a talk with uh, a, a brief talk, but a substantive talk with uh, one of Europe's leaders. Uh, and uh, I expressed my views and uh, I was told, you're exactly right. And then the same leader said exactly the opposite uh, at Vilnius. (laughs) So, you know, you watch this close up and people are dying. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yes. It's unbelievable that we can't be honest long enough to sit down and stop the killing and make the politics to stop the killing because it's not that hard. Professor Sachs, I I understand you have a hard stop. So we're going to stop 
we're going to stop at this point. Thank you very, very much for this exceptional programme. We had that interruption. I don't think it mattered because all the key points were made. Thank you. Great. Well, great, great to be with you and see you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Look, we're still live. I'll have all of uh, Professor Sachs' information mm. in the description box down below. He's um, never going to I, tell us, but I'd love to know which leader that was. <laughs> I mean, <well>, yeah, <laughs> I would. I would really love to know which one it was. Hmm. I, I doubt it was Rishi Sunak, by the way. <laughs> no, it wasn't Rishi Sunak. I, 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 Rishi I, Sunak I, actually would believes everything that's that. that I agree with that. I agree with that. I, I'll tell you some one person though who's clearly having doubts, and that's Ben Wallace. I'm sure you've heard that he's now the latest victim of the Alensky curse. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. So if you had to guess, who do you think it was? Well, what about the chat? What does the chat think? Which which yeah, world leader? World leader. Which yeah. world leader would 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 say that? Yes, mm. this is going really bad. Project Ukraine in private, but then in public, would be going along with Stoltenberg and Biden and, and all of these mm. guys. I'm trying to think and take out Viktor Orban. Viktor Orban. Oh, this absolutely. Is in public, it's like not you. going well. Yeah, Macron. <laughs> you took the word out of my mouth. You know, I'm looking I, at the I, chat I, right, right but, now. But, but can I can I just say this is pure guesswork? I mean, we've Maloney? had no hint at all. Schultz? Maloney, Schultz. Hmm. I'm still looking at the chat and seeing what it, Duda. Yeah. Ricardo Duda. says Duda. Mm. That would be you know, a very interesting one. Duda, Duda. I remember there was a time, yeah. Alexander, yeah. when uh, Macron called Duda. And Duda was like, no, no, we don't want to start any conflict with, with Russia. Remember that? That was like mm. way in the beginning. Mm. Uh, that was when the, um, when the, S, uh, the S-300, when the, when the missile fell in Poland and Macron called yeah. Duda. And Duda was like, you know, just don't listen to what I'm saying in public and private. We don't want any, any conflict with, mm. with Russia. We, so Duda could be an interesting choice. He could be an interesting choice. Indeed, absolutely. That's, that's entirely correct. Anyway, um, I... I, I, I if I, if you push me against a wall and ask me who I think it could be, I, I'm, I'm going to guess is one of two people, either Pavel, who's the Czech leader, who's also saying some extremely interesting and ambiguous things. I mean, he, he's clearly not really signed up to this um, whole adventure at all. The other possibility that immediately strikes me, but again, let me stress this is a this is a it's guess, guess. Purely, <laughs> yeah. is is in fact Macron. Yeah. Because I mean Macron gives the impression that he does sometimes understand these things. But if I was to guess myself, I would say it was most probably um uh, Pavel. Pavel strikes me, by the way, as a rather I said this in one of my programs, or at least one of the programs that we did together, I think it was actually, that mm. he strikes me as a rather more complicated and interesting uh, a man with more dimensions to him than some of the Western coverage of him might suggest. But anyway, there we go. The fact remains, he comes along, he always agrees to whatever the <laughs> combinate, combinate says. Just one very last thing from me about this, with what, what um, Professor Sachs was saying, which is the one thing I would actually not really agree with is about the fact that you know, all these debates happen in secret. Debates that happen in secret in democracies are not really debates. <laughs> I think that's the thing to say. If this thing had been debated out in the open way back 
in the 1990s and thereafter. Experts would have chimed in, they'd have expressed their view, there would have been discussions, there would have been proper discussion of all of the possibilities and the options put before the American people, the people in the various European countries. And I am confident that in that case, we would have ended up with a completely different outcome. The fact is, these were not really debates. If they're carried out in secret, they are not debates. They are, I hate to use the word, but they are plots, much more like plots, fermented in secret by a small group of people who have gained control of the levers of power. And that is the tragedy. I, I, I think that's the, that, that's the, uh, the summary yeah. of this live stream. And that's yeah. what Professor Sachs was pretty much yes. uh, saying. That Absolutely. This is a plot that goes back decades. Yes. decades. And he was actually there to witness the yes. rise of, of the neocons, Absolutely. which I found fascinating. I mean, he was, he was there. He saw it. Newland in one administration to another administration to another to another. I mean, she has been in every administration except for Trump's, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I think that's right. I think, that, I think that's right. I think that's right. She's a member of the permanent American government. I mean, she absolutely is. But clearly, she's not the only person. I mean, there's a whole group of others who are also involved. But uh, they do have control of the levers. They they have it both within the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And I have to say also, some of the things that Professor Sachs was telling us about the discussions that took place in the early 90s. I mean, Yegor Gaidar, whom I remember very well, by the way, coming out ashen-faced out of a meeting with the G7. I mean, that is in January, in January 1992, a period of time I also remember very well, by the way. I mean, that is extremely interesting. And um, on economics, just, just to quickly say, uh, um, J.M. Keynes, controversial person for many people, but he did actually... Uh, have a role in stabilizing currencies. And in fact, he set up a stable currency in northern Russia, briefly, during the period when the British were occupying that place during the Russian Civil War. So anyway, that's apparently the person that Professor Sachs is um, re referencing. And I would just also say uh, Keynes did write that book about the economic consequences of the peace which people should absolutely read. And it is one of the best books, if not the best book, written at the time about the effect of the Versailles Treaty. Yeah. Do you have five minutes, Alexander? Absolutely, just, yeah, absolutely. Just go quickly, five to minutes, go through the questions. Yeah, absolutely, um, let's do that. Just, let's let's do just that. knock them out and knock uh, we'll out. wrap yeah, up absolutely. the, yes. the I have more than Absolutely, yeah. more than yeah. five F, minutes if we F, need. F F22 Daniel says, why doesn't Russia deploy SU-57 or, or TU-160s in Ukraine? Well, I think that's a question to be addressed to the Russian general staff. I'm not able to answer it. Um, on the question of the SU-57s, I believe that they have actually been operating in Ukraine. In what exact and precise role, I am not able to say. But remember, this is an aircraft still very much in its early stages of development, like the Chinese J-20 is. And apparently, it only flew for the first time in October with the engine that has been designed for it, which has only now entered production. Uh, yo, thank you for that super chat. Uh, Death Dealer says, are F-16s actually going to Ukraine? Well, that's a very good question. I'm starting to doubt it. 
in fact. I mean, the, there was a comment by Lieutenant General Sims, who is a Pentagon official, and he said that the situation for F-16s is not ideal because, you know, the Russians have an air defense system and they have an air force. So we don't want to send the F-16s against something like that. Who's, you know, what a surprise. The Russians have an air defense system and an air force. The problem is, if you use that kind of logic, then it's impossible to see that there would ever be an ideal situation to supply F-16s to Ukraine. I th I I'm going to quickly um, anticipate things we're going to discuss in future, Alex and I. I think that there is now growing recrimination, arguments between Ukraine, the Ukrainian leadership and the United States. And I think the U.S. is very, well, let's say the U.S., the administration, they're very, very angry about the failure of the offensive. And I think they're also very, they're becoming, they're cooling on the idea of giving F-16s to Ukraine and seeing them burnt up in the way that the Bradleys and the Strikers have been. Yeah. Robin R., thank you for that super chat. Jerry, thank you for that super chat. Alexander, thank you for that super sticker. Steve VC says, peace. Deborah Kroll says, peace too. And yeah. uh, think had. 20 says, as an expert of currency stabilization, what's Sachs's opinion of the future of the USD? Actually, he's answered that in the past live stream. Absolutely. He has to. He has to. This is a colossal subject, if yeah. I may say so. Uh, and, and can I just say, we're talking about, I mean, Zloty's stabilization in the 90s and ruble stabilization in the 90s is a very different story from whatever you're going to do with the dollar today. So I, I you know, I, I, I think that these, this, is a, this is a topic he did touch on, but it would require a much bigger program uh, looking at the whole economic situation of the United States and where it's going uh, before we could really answer a question like that, certainly with Professor Sachs. Yeah. Uh, Ram V says NATO has retaliation immunity. How can Russia reply? Well, I think the very point Professor Sachs was making is that it doesn't. And I think this is the fundamental mistake that they are making. They, they come up with these incredible plans. I mean, there was a crazy article by a man called Daniel Hannon in the Daily Telegraph. A man, by the way, for whom I have a lot of time. I think he's a, in some ways a, you know, an honorable person and you know, an interesting commentator on occasions. But I mean, he was, again, all in about, you know, we must punish the Russians. We must make them pay for the Soviet era. We must break up their country. We must create a new Muscovy based on Moscow and St. Petersburg and have the republics of Siberia and all the rest. All, Never. All, all of this crazy stuff. And people like this talk as if Russians are oblivious to it and that there will never be any consequences. Well, we are seeing consequences now. We have run out of ammunition. The President of the United States tells us this. We are being warned all the time. The Russians have said, if you supply S-16s to Ukraine, this is a dual-capable aircraft. We will be on the alert. We don't know whether it's been used with nuclear weapons or not. It brings us dangerously close to the point where, according to our own doctrines, we might have to use nuclear weapons as well. It is reckless to think that we in the West are um, retaliation, uh, you know, immune. We're not. Yeah. Claude says hi from Quebec City. 
Canada. Hello, Claude. Red Pill Scholar says, please ask about the role of plundering Russia and what led to his change of heart. Thank you, guys. Great guest. Greatest show on YT. Love you guys. Thank well, you, I, 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 I'm going to push back on that. I mean, I, I remember uh, Professor Sachs very well in his activities at the time. And I, I, I want to say this because I was following events in the Soviet Union and in Russia very, very closely. And it was absolutely clear to me that there were some people who went there with good intentions and there were some people who went there with very bad intentions indeed. And the tragedy is that some of those people who went there with good intentions were, well, they've been tarred. They've been, in effect, lumped together with those people who went there with bad intentions. Professor Sachs never wanted to plunder Russia. He was never party to any of that. Others were. We mustn't lump the. T I mean, this is this is completely wrong. I understand why people in Russia feel angry and bitter about that time, but per Professor Sachs is not the person to be angry and bitter towards. I remember it. I remember it well. I was talking to people in London already at that time. I know of what I speak. Sleepy Crane says, was there a chance for Putin to leave Crimea independent in 2014 like he's done with Donbass? It seems annexing it outright fueled a lot of public support for the anti-Russian agenda since then. Well, I, go on. Yeah, annexing. I, 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 yeah. I never liked that word. Annexing. No, well, I never liked that I always, word says, I always say that Crimea ascended. Yes, into, into yeah. Russia. I think that's a more proper term. No, I, I'm, I'm going to say straight away two things about this. The first thing to understand is that that was not what the people of Crimea at that time wanted. So imposing independence on them would have been imposing a solution upon them that they emphatically did not want. They wanted union with Russia. That is the first thing. The second is, I think, that would have created vulnerabilities because if Crimea were independent, it would have been completely dependent upon Russia. At the same time, that would have caused a structural difficulty. I mean, on what basis would the Russian army, for example, have operated in Crimea in that case? How would you integrate the Crimean economy and the Russian economy? What kind of defensive preparations would you have organized? What would have been the exact position of the Russian Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol? Far more straightforward, far simpler to do that which the people of Crimea wanted and agreed to their wish for union with Russia. Yep. Uh, Lada Moreau says, I wish uh, Professor Sachs stopped reminding how he was involved with ruining the Soviet Union economy in 90s. As a reminder to Prof, lots of families plundered into poverty because of his ideas. Well, he, he, that's the whole point. They weren't his ideas. He was, he was arguing against these things. He wasn't trying to destroy the Soviet economy. He was generally trying to save it. Now, again, I, I, you know, I don't want to revisit this or discuss this at too much length. I remember that time. I was in some ways better connected in those days than um, I am today. I know what the debates were, and I know what Professor Sachs was arguing at that time. And he was not involved in the things that you say. Others uh, were, but not him. Bruno Schneider says, never discussed it yet. If Russia wins the SMO, what would it mean economically for the Baltic states and Poland? I 
think that is an excellent question. Um, I think that it will certainly mean for the Baltic states that they will be in a very difficult situation, not just economically, but geopolitically as well. It will push them into deeper dependence still on the European Union and on the United States. And it will make a lot of people in the Baltic states wonder about their future, about the future of the Baltic states as independent entities. They will have seen that Ukraine will have been defeated, a much bigger country than any single one of these small countries. Despite all that support from the West, they will see that at the end of the day, the United States was not able to save Ukraine. And they will ask why in that case, if the United States was not prepared to fight for Ukraine or lost in the fight for Ukraine, is it would be would it be able to either fight or fight successfully for us? So I think they would be in deep crisis. As for Poland, well, I think Poland is a different proposition because it's a much bigger country. And I think it is a more, I have to say this, a more diverse country. I think there's more different political views. I would hope that after the failure, the the failure of this project in Ukraine, we would see a pendulum shift and we would probably see see a situation where um, there might finally be a push for some kind of reconciliation with the Russians. That may sound unlikely, but I know Poland a little, and Polish people that I have spoken to, including people that we've had discussions with on our channels, people like Anya and uh, uh, Mike Krupa, they say the same thing. Sticky Mark says, was remember Julian Assange. Absolutely, and Julian Assange. And by the way, Gonzalo Lira, let's not forget him too. Absolutely. Free Gonzalo, free Julian Assange. Lada Moreau says, I am surprised that Prof didn't understand, Professor didn't understand why financial help stopped to USSR slash RU because the West wanted to break our country to get hands on the natural resources. Yes, I, I understand that. And maybe looking back, he was, you know, naive and innocent about some of the people that he was working with in Washington. A lot of people were. Uh, but again, it, it's difficult to remember the moods, the atmosphere at that time. There was a sense of euphoria. There was a feeling that people like, um, you know, Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush and Gorbachev were all coming together, that the world was going to be sorted out. And I, for one, understand why it was easy to get swept along with all of this. To some extent, I was. Of course, I was younger in those days and less experienced than Professor Sachs was. But to some extent, even I was swept along with it. And I'm a fairly sceptical and rather cynical person, as I even you're, was you're, in those days. You're Greek. <laughs> I'm Greek, exactly. exactly. Ricardo, Ricardo Alfonso says the point was to break Russia all along. Whatever mm. they gave Poland was never going to be given to Russia. Those people are pure evil. I've said I know someone whose husband was plundering them. They believe Russia really belongs to them. Yes, I, I think that's very well said, actually. 
Costandinas, thank you for that super chat. And Costandinos again says, shock financial therapy, never have Westerners help you with your economy. They just want your resources. Russia is on the right path now. Well, I think that's, I think the last is probably true. But can I, can I also say, I mean, you know, I, I said that perhaps Professor Sachs was naive. Actually, I mean, looking back, he wasn't being naive. He was being realistic. He understood that this was the correct way forward in the interests of the West. What the, this mad thing that we embarked on in the early 90s, this this disastrous plan that we embarked in the early 1990s, which has led us to this situation we're in today, was an act of megalomania on an astonishing scale. And perhaps it's not naive to imagine that your leaders are realists rather than megalomaniacs, which is the, you know, the, the point which, you know, at that point back in the 1990s. And, and those were leaders back then. Mm. who are much better than the yeah, leaders we have we now. Have now. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God, God help us. Mm. Uh, Ricardo Afonso says, Dmitry Olaf has an excellent assessment of how Russia got through this time. He'd be a great guest. He would indeed. He's he a very interesting man, guest. by the way. Yeah, He would, absolutely. Uh, Marian says, uh, South Africa has also set up for failure with Western advisors in the early 90s. South Africa in hindsight and new insights. Let me see why our country is a mess. Said 456123G says, thank you for sharing your intelligence. The prophet's wife, Zhao999, thank you for that super sticker. Lada Moreau says, this is exactly how the West always seen us, an abnormal who needs to break and steal from. Professor just confirmed it with his example of talking to Yeltsin. Unbelievable. Yeah. Frank Riley, thank you for that super chat. Sparky says, greetings from backwoods of the deep south. Alex and Alexander, great work as always. Great to hear Jeff with his direct experience and insights. Mm. Thank you, Sparky, for that. Ackerman, thank you for that super sticker. Nobody says, where the people's voice is not heard, there will be revolution. The world teacher, also known as Matreya, Buddha, Krishna, Christ, etc. Reference Benjamin Cream. Bill Rose says, never forget that Brzezinski reversed himself right before he died and advocated for a multipolar world. I didn't know that. Yes, I, well, I didn't know much about that, but he was a clever man, and I suspect a rather, rather more grounded in reality than some of his followers. Yeah. yeah. Island Popsicle says, thank you for all your great insight and knowledge. You all are the few voices of sanity. Ricardo Alfonso says, Alex, have you considered making videos from Moscow about daily life? Check out shopping malls and grocery stores, restaurants, and how people are getting on with life. Would be good to see. I don't know if I'd be good at that. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there, are, there are a lot of YouTube channels that are doing that. Absolutely, I was going to. I I I, I, I was going to say, and yeah. bear in mind something else. You know, Westerner wandering around and making films like this <laughs> might not be exactly welcome at this point. <laughs> Ricardo Alfonso says obsessions always lead to ruin. Sparky says Newland, Blinken, and Sullivan are all OCD about breaking up Russia. It's their fault when they wake up in the morning yeah well said sparky ocd yeah donna rob donna roberts says super sticker just a super sticker ricardo alfonso says copium is a deadly drug nicely put ricardo mm -hmm. says it was duda 
we're talking about leaders. Uh, yeah. Elza says, Klitschko, in an interview, Germany has a real expert in Miss Baerbach. When a comic can't make a quote funnier, it is coming from Klitschko. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Great boxer, but not, <laughs> not so sharp up there. Sparky says, I think that I was someone from, someone whom Jeffrey had known for years. Sparky. JV Manila says, as always, only the best from the Duran. Keep up the great work, guys. Thank you for that. Sparky says, correction, it was someone, not I was. Okay. Now it makes, now it makes sense, Sparky. Martin Mall, thank you for that super chat. Life of Brian says, our NATO ruling class is a study of abnormal psychology. They can't change their behavior even when it clearly harms them like addicts. Mm. Tech Wong, thank you for that super sticker. Ricardo Alfonso says, I predict that... Sections will be put on Ukraine. Sections. Sections will be put on Ukraine. Uh, Tatiana Carr Mitchell, thank you for that super sticker. NG Pilot, thank you for that awesome super chat. Raphael says, a journalist asked Putin why Zelensky is still alive. Putin answered, I have my reasons. <laughs> you guys name us just one of Putin's reasons. Just one, well, of, one, one of Putin's reasons might be. Well, I mean... Briefly, uh, why replace an incompetent leader with somebody who might be more competent, but even more fanatical? Because that's probably the kind of person who would replace Zelensky. Yeah, so, uh... I, I, I would quickly add that you know I know you know followed Putin's career very closely. He is not somebody who actually takes very well to the idea of sending teams to assassinate leaders in other countries. That's not Putin at all. Yeah, they projected that on Putin. Oh, no. They yeah. put out that, that stuff about, about him. It's just projection. Yeah. Sarah says, uh, WSJ today, Ukraine adopts slow counteroffensive approach. Reader comments urging more escalation seem to be diminishing in my we, we are, we are We're seeing this all the time. And there's an extraordinary article today, headline article in the Washington Post. Ukraine is, I mean, it clearly makes clear, at least to me, that the US, that the administration is very angry with the Ukrainians because they're not going for a breakthrough. The Ukrainians cannot break through. And there's 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 lots of arguments going on and quarrels behind the scenes. Bill Rose says, what is plan B for the dollar? A broke superpower is a scary thought. Mm -hmm. It certainly is. That's exactly what Professor Sachs was saying about the Soviet Union and about Russia in, at that time. Um, can I just say, when it comes to the dollar and the future of the dollar, what happens to the dollar is more than anything else, something that Americans themselves must decide. No one can help them if they won't help themselves. And for the time being, I think America does have the space to turn things around with the dollar, but it's running out fast. Uh, Ricardo Alfonso meant sanctions will be put on Ukraine. Ah, uh, got sanctions. it. Got it. Mm. All right. William says the USA is trying to, to destroy Ukraine in 1992. Sex. Mm. Uh, Stanley Park, thank you for that super sticker. Susie QRN, thank you for that super chat. Commander Crossfire, welcome. Think before you type says to be an enemy of the US is dangerous, but to be a friend is fatal. Henry Kissinger, why don't yeah. people learn from war criminals' admissions? Well, why don't they, in fact? Why, why, why do leaders fall for the same trap that they, you know, that they, that, that, you know, we've seen in South Vietnam, in Afghanistan, in other places? 
Why did they fall for the same thing again and again and again? Well, I think I think I think well I think you, you provided the answer. I mean it was it, I mean it works for them, yeah. You leave with suitcases full of things. <laughs> yeah. Uh Martin says, What happens when BRICS releases its gold backed currency? Cartels seek to exchange trillions of dollars and get ten cents on the dollar. Instant fake currency collapse? No. It won't be. I mean, I think. I think people. I mean, this is an. This is a complicated accounting system that is going to be created between the BRICS. It's basically a system of trade between between the BRICS and the countries that they trade with. It will exist for a time alongside the dollar system. Now, over time, that may change, but it will not lead, in my opinion, to an immediate collapse of the dollar. Sophisticated caveman says Putin's waiting to commence full-scale invasion to try negotiate. Who's really going to negotiate in the West? Honestly, Macron, no one home to talk. Yeah. Well, this is the problem. I mean, uh, and and who would Putin want to negotiate with in the West? I mean, with Biden. I mean, Xi Jinping actually said to Biden, "You're always lying to me." <laughs> so I mean, that was Xi Jinping's view. Do you think Putin's is any different? They, they they break every agreement they make. Absolutely, yeah. The grain deal. <laughs> the grain deal, being the, the absolutely. Yeah. Robert uh, Seliman is new member. Welcome to Drag Community. Sancho Relaxo says Russia had the original September 11 in Crimea, 1855. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the that's the that's the Crimean War. Lada Moreau says, Dear Alexander, you talked to people at those times. I lived through them. Sorry for still being bitter. Oh, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, saying that you shouldn't be bitter. You have every right to be bitter. You've got not just bitter. You have every right to be extremely angry. I mean, can I just say, I mean, you know, I was a member of a club in London. And I haven't discussed this before. This was before the Soviet Union fell. And uh, it was it was. I won't name the club, but it was one of the famous clubs in St. James's. I was a member there and I went to a Christmas party and this was Christmas 1990. And all of the people suddenly, all the people there turned up with all these girlfriends aged roughly 17 that they'd suddenly brought from Moscow. I resigned. I didn't want to have anything to do with it any longer. So you have every right to be angry. I completely understand your anger. And I was there in 1998. I went to Russia in 1998. I saw what it was like. Please don't apologize to me for your bitterness and your anger. Irish Partisan says, any chance you would get Alex McKay from Red Star Radio on your live stream? He's a frequent guest on RT and talks about UK economy and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Okay. We'll try. I'm, I'm not familiar with no one or mine, to be honest. We'll, we'll check them out. Absolutely. Um, entry uh, Ricard says the years leading up to 92 and 92 itself were significant in the, in the EU. How did this intertwine with NATO expansion? I think it was deeply intertwined, but we don't know all the details. Hmm. Rafik Adams says greetings from Dubai. Sorry, missed you guys today. Might have covered already, but what is the change that Russia will escalate? What is the chance that Russia will escalate attacks on command centers after recent bridge attack? Very high. 
I, I would I would I would say that it's a certainty actually. Yeah, Putin vowed it. He yeah. said, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Mark Hewitt says, "Am I being stupid thinking that the West had involved that the West had involvement in the 1991 Soviet coup?" This is a very complicated story, and I I don't actually think so. Um, but it, it, it was a complicated story because, of course, you must understand that there were two events going on at one at the same time. There was the people who were um, organizing the attempt to overthrow Gorbachev himself, who were drawn from the Politburo, the military, the KGB, all of those people. And I don't think those people were working for the West. But then, of course, there were people on the other side, people who were supporting Yeltsin, um, who probably were to some extent connected to the West, even at that time. The trouble is, there hasn't been a real investigation of that event, either in Russia itself or in the West. There are so many unanswered questions, but probably there was some involvement, but not in terms of the actual coup plotters that tried to overthrow Gorbachev himself. I think before you type, as a Somali, the West has been trying to depopulate our people for years with lies, and I know they don't care about us now since they virtue signal. Well, absolutely true. Commander Crossfire says, will we see the liberation of Odessa now? Yes, eventually, yes. I mean, I've always said this. I, I do not see this war ending without some kind of arrangement for Odessa that will satisfy Russian feelings about the city. Andrei um, Martyanov, by the way, said the same thing on one yeah. of our programs. Yeah. yeah. Elena Diaz says, if Putin goes to Turkey, isn't it a risk they, they apprehend him to pressure Russia? I don't, I don't think they've agreed to a trip to Turkey. No, yeah. he hasn't yet agreed to a trip to Turkey, and I think he's letting Erdogan stew. <laughs> Uh, Controlled Demolition says, can we in the U.S. reach out to Wagner to take care of our Bill Men Mengelates platform? <laughs> Reina, thank you for that super sticker. Rafik Adams says, love your podcasts. Fearless and objective. I respect the fact that you have a very balanced approach missing in mainstream media. Saxon, other views largely excluded from most platforms. Thanks for giving him a voice. Yeah. yeah. And uh, sophisticated caveman says, "Does Putin's hesitation make him look weak now?" No, I don't think he. I mean, I, this, this is we come back to the point that Professor Sachs was making. The West always thought that he was bluffing, but it turned out that he wasn't. He's not a person who bluffs, and that he hesitates. I think there's another way of describing it. What he does is he thinks before he acts. That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. Never, ever act in anger. That's a basic rule. Think what you do before you do it. And be very careful that you work out in advance that what you're going to do is going to work out to your own advantage. Yeah. They said that Abraham Lincoln would always, when he was angry, he would write a letter. That's right. Like putting all his anger on paper and then he'd put it in his desk. And just exactly. Let it sit there. Exactly. And then when he would take it out, he would be like, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to send this letter. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Caesar, Caesar Augustus, by the way, used to recite the Greek alphabet. Really? <laughs> uh, Mwad Jamal says, how is Putin going 
to handle the schizo that is Erdogan moving forward? Well, he's always in the end, in my opinion, managed to get Erdogan in the end to do for him what he wants. Let's be quite clear. What actually has Erdogan achieved over the last few two weeks that really hurts Putin or Russia? He's got Sweden into NATO. That actually simplifies Russian war planning in the Baltic because to be straightforward about it, Sweden was always allied with the United States and with NATO. Everybody has known this since the 60s. He, he got Zelensky five Azov fighters who will now be presumably at some point either going to fight on the battlefronts where they'll probably get killed or staying in Kiev where they're more likely to do trouble for Zelensky than anything else. And that's it. That's all that Erdogan has actually done. So, um, or, and what has Erdogan lost? Think about this. Russia pulled out of the grain deal yesterday. A lot of that grain was going to Turkey and was being re-exported by Turkey. And Turkey was making an awful lot of money out of that trade. That is real money. Turkey has just lost it. Mm -hmm. Space Cake says, great work, gentlemen. Little recommendation. German journalist Dirk Polman knows a lot of Cold War and so on. Right, okay. Thank you for that recommendation. And Melon says, Kazarian, ethnic hatred of Russians. Ethnic hatred of Russians. No, I don't think that has any relevance to this. I mean, if you're talking about neocons, I mean, they're a pretty diverse group. Um, uh, Let's not waste our time on that one. All right, those are the uh, questions. Fantastic. Yeah. We can wrap this one up, Alexander. I've got a bunch of videos that I need to, uh, <laughs> to get up. And I need, if there's anyone in the chat that knows the city center of Moscow where there is fast internet, please let me know because it's making my life very, very hard. I need fast internet. All right. Okay. okay. Um, thank you to our moderators. Uh, who was moderating today? Alexander, and we'll sign off. Zarael. Valley S. Who else? I think that's. Is it just Valley S and Zario? That's it? That's it. Mm. Okay. Ah, Reckless Abandon. Reckless Abandon as well. All right. Thank you to our moderators. And uh, thank you to everyone that was watching us on Rockfin, Odyssey, The Duran.locals. Rumble. Oh, real quick from uh, locals, Alexander. Hello from Lithuania, Panchandra. Mm-hmm. And from Dominique Gardet. I am amazed by the lack of reaction to such a serious accusation of corruption by such competent and well known personalities as Scott Ritter McGregor of corruption of generals like Petraeus and others. There is something rotten in dot, dot, dot. Yes, yes, it's true. It's absolutely correct. All right. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.